The gentleman will state his inquiry. I would inquire of the parliamentarian in the chair. Once the speaker has said the vote is closed and all time has expired, and that is on this tape, we have it on the videotape. Once that has been done, how can it be reopened? That's a young congressman named Newt Gingrich back in 1987, objecting so strongly you might even say he's attacking Speaker of the House Jim Wright on a procedural issue. Welcome to season two of The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And Newt Gingrich is not the guest of our show today, but he is the subject of our discussion with the noted author and historian Julian Zelizer. His New York Times notable biography, Burning Down the House, documents Gingrich's takedown of the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, in 1989. This ushers in a new era of hyperpartisanship in Congress, if not the whole country. Ethics is a big part of this story. We begin by examining Gingrich's own ethical standards. Zelizer quotes one former colleague who put it this way, Newt doesn't take the low road, he takes the tunnel. Which is a pretty low blow in itself. So we asked Dr. Zelizer if his research had uncovered many similar observations. There really were. Some I heard just interviewing various members of Congress, including Republicans, including Republicans who worked with him and said this about him in not subtle terms. And this was an ongoing theme. And it wasn't just Democrats who have these memories. It was his own staffers. It was like-minded Republicans. Even people who respected him very much didn't particularly like this person. And they also understood the dangers of what he does. So it was it's one of the most consistent things I think I found other than his own strategy over the years. Yeah, so it's interesting that physically, Gingrich doesn't look like a tough guy. I mean, he's got kind of a baby face and he's a little flabby, if I may say that, and got kind of a high-pitched voice. And you wouldn't look at him and say, you know, don't mess with that dude. So where does that toughness come from? That's a very interesting point. He, he doesn't have the appearance of a bodybuilder or something who is going to intimidate through his physicality. He's not like Lyndon Johnson, who was the president of the 60s and had the capacity to lean over people and intimidate him by invading their physical space. Part of it is his intellect. He is very bright. He's very sharp. And rhetorically, he has the skills of a pretty tough debater as early as high school. And I think he develops that through reading, through his interaction with his stepdad, who constantly would quiz the family on what's going on in politics. That's where he gains the skills to be a bully. It's not his physicality. It's what he can say about you and what he can say to you that really defines his approach to intimidation. It seems like in college and perhaps in his 20s, Gingrich is more of a moderate Republican. I think at one point he supports Nelson Rockefeller, who was considered a VP pick by both parties. Hard to imagine that today. So was it just political expediency that caused his rightward turn as he begins to run for Congress, or was there an actual change in philosophy? Well, it's both. He is, as you say, he was a moderate Republican in high school, college, and when he gets a PhD in history at Tulane, he very much liked Nelson Rockefeller, who was part of the moderate ring of the Republican Party uh, when there was a moderate wing. And then in 68 and 72, he was a Nixon fan. 
And he liked Nixon because he thought this was a Republican trying to build a broad coalition, something like FDR did in the 1930s. And he only takes his shift to the hard right around 1975 when he's preparing to run for the House of Representatives for the second time. He lost the first time and he is starting to figure out when he runs again, what does he need to do? And he starts to become networked with people who were active in the conservative movement of the 1970s that was growing and taking form. Gingrich eventually gets elected. He arrives in Washington, and the very first thing he does, I think you put it in the book, his first official act as a congressman is to take on a civil rights leader against the advice of some of his party elders. So tell us about that episode. Yeah, that's a, a pretty amazing decision for a young Republican congressman. He goes after Congressman Charlie Diggs of Detroit. Diggs, just as a context, was one of the most important African-American uh, legislators. He had been very involved with the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He had helped create the Congressional Black Caucus in 1971. But he did find himself in ethical trouble by 1979 and 1980. A lot of Republicans told Gingrich, this isn't the best idea for your first target. This is an African-American who's very respected, and you're going to fulfill the idea that the new Southern Republicans are basically backlash politicians playing on the politics of race. But he doesn't care. He moves forward with it. In the interest of thoroughness, we should say that Diggs was later convicted and did serve time. So No, absolutely. And he was guilty. And uh, it turned out after this was all over that he had engaged in some bad behavior. That said, the question really was what to do while an investigation was going on, how to do it. And, you know, the idea that a young Republican would be the one leading the charge. Right. Another event or action that kind of foreshadows things, he forms this caucus, the Conservative Opportunities Society or COS. And you borrow a phrase from a journalist, Gail Sheehy, about Gingrich, that he wants to become the Che Guevara of conservatism. So tell us about the COS and their interest in these kind of revolutionary tactics. Yeah, this becomes the base through which Gingrich really rises to power. So he comes into Washington in 1979, the year he started going after Diggs. And he's you know, very much angry, not only with Democrats who had controlled the House of Representatives since 1955, but he also doesn't like senior Republicans. And he believes that senior Republicans had basically gotten used to being a minority party. They weren't ready to do what was necessary to retake control of the House and Senate. They believed in compromise and civility, and Gingrich thought that just meant lacking power. So he decides to organize, almost like a guerrilla fighter, which is a term he actually often uses and talks about. And the Conservative Opportunity Society was a small group of like-minded conservative Republicans. And as a group, there were about 12 or 13 of them when they started. They would be pretty ruthless in not only getting attention for what they were doing, but in starting to undercut the power of the Democratic Party. 
That's Princeton University historian Julian Zelizer discussing burning down the house about former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. And Emily, we should say that as we've done interviews on how these United States have become so polarized, the role Gingrich has played comes up over and over again. That's right, and sometimes unexpectedly. Like early in season one from Dr. Abigail Marsh, the neuropsychologist, we spoke about the importance of contact between people of different political backgrounds. And she brought up a rule change that Gingrich made as Speaker of the House. And one of the reasons for the current political divide relates to changes that Newt Gingrich made to the way Congress works decades ago, where, you know, he changed the length of the congressional work week so that he made it much shorter so that Congress people could go back to their home districts over the weekends. And then it turned out their families didn't move to D.C. They didn't hang out socially together in D.C. anymore. And so people that used to have these friendships across political differences stopped having those friendships. Also in season one, the historian Jeff Cabaservice, he noted Gingrich's history-making role flipping the House to Republicans in 1994 and ascending to the Speaker's chair. Cabaservice documented the decline of moderate Republicans in his own New York Times notable book, Rule and Ruin. He feels that Gingrich put the final nail in their coffin as a political force. Well, moderate Republicanism took a nasty hit in 1964 when Barry Goldwater the very conservative Arizona senator, became the GOP presidential nominee. The problem was that the conservative faction gained strength with every passing year. Richard Nixon really took the party in a much more populist direction after 1970. And life became more difficult for them after Ronald Reagan became elected in 1980. But really, this problems became worse with Newt Gingrich in the 1994 election and Moderates have really been marginalized in the party at this point. Dr. Cabaservice told us that if Gingrich hadn't filled that role, somebody else would have. But Dr. Zelizer paints Gingrich as a really major and kind of unique force behind polarization these past few decades. That's right. In Zelizer's view, that's because of the main event of burning down the House. Gingrich's role in upending the Democratic speaker, Jim Wright, on fairly minor charges. We asked him why he chose to document this episode rather than the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Well, one thing I was really interested in is when does Gingrich's style of partisanship enter into what the party leaders were doing? I think that's important. When do you have someone like a Joe McCarthy, an outlier, a bomb thrower, a maverick, all of a sudden become part of the leadership? And that happens during his takedown of Speaker Jim Wright. During that takedown, he employs his no guardrail type of partisanship very successfully and is able to pressure the Speaker of the House into resigning, which had never happened in American history. And second, during this whole process where he's going after the Speaker for ethics problems, not only does he show all the tools that he's gonna use for the rest of his career, but House Republicans elect him to a leadership position, House Minority Whip. And that was a big decision because the Republicans who until then had kept arm's length at Gingrich and said what he's doing was too dangerous for Washington and would erode our ability to govern, then they decide to bring him in as a leader. Well, tell us a little bit more about his tactics and maybe objectives too in going after Speaker Wright. 
Well, the speaker was a great target for him. Gingrich, since uh, that attack on Charlie Diggs, had been focused on the question of ethics. And he saw the ethics rules that Congress had adopted after Watergate to try to clean up Washington as a tool that could be weaponized against the Democratic Party. And one of his main arguments had been, before Wright becomes speaker, that it wasn't a liberal conservative debate that was shaping Washington. It was a anti-establishment versus establishment debate, and Democrats were the corrupt establishment. Wright becomes speaker. He takes over when Tip O'Neill resigns in 1986, and in 87, this old school Texan, Jim Wright, who was a legislator's legislator, he wasn't very well loved personally, but he was someone who spent his whole life in the institution, and there wasn't anything really illegal or anything that violated the ethics rules, but Gingrich crafts a narrative when he's speaking to reporters, when he's speaking to other members, that this was almost as bad as Watergate, that we were talking about high-level corruption as opposed to the way all legislators acted at the time. He knows how the politics of smear works in the modern media, and the more accusations you get out quickly, the harder they are to retract. I think our listeners today live in such a partisan time so maybe it's not surprising to look back and see that Gingrich was able to convince his fellow Republicans to go against Wright. But how is it the Democrats turned against their own speaker? I would say with the Republicans, it wasn't inevitable. And, and from today's perspective, it seems kind of inevitable because what Gingrich did and the world he created is now the status quo. That's the point of the book. But when he came to Washington and straight through 1989, when Wright finally resigns, there were a lot of Republicans who didn't agree with what he was doing. The Democrats are more interesting. Why do they basically listen? Speaker Jim Wright, who resigns in May of 1989, didn't have to resign. The House Ethics Committee had not found him guilty of a single thing so far, and there was no evidence that he broke a law, but he resigns, and he resigns in part because he's just scared this is going to destroy his life personally, the costs of lawyers and the character smear. He resigns because many Democrats are also telling him privately, we don't want to stand by you because the political costs are too high. And it becomes a point of contention right through this day. I spoke with a group of Democrats who were kind of there at the time about my book, and there was a group of them, quite prominent, who said it was the biggest mistake that the Democrats made, that they basically conceded to this kind of partisanship. Not only should they have defended the speaker and said there's no reason he needs to resign, but they should have been more aggressive in pointing out that Gingrich was under ethics investigations at the time. He was being accused of similar things that he was accusing the speaker and others of doing. But in the end, they backed down. Their political fears were much stronger than their will to keep fighting him. And they were also a different kind of party. Democrats in the 80s were still operating, many of them, by older rules. They thought that Gingrich would go away. But the Democrats were wrong. They didn't understand Gingrich was the voice of the new Republican Party rather than an outlier. The policy I, I apologize. The I don't have order and I can't quite hear the chair. The chair will, the House be in order, the chair will respond to the gentleman's inquiry. It always has been to this occupant of the chair's knowledge, the policy of the chair to 
honor the desire of any member in the chamber to vote or to change his votes. And if no other members desire to vote or to change their votes, all time has expired. On this vote, the yeas are 206, nays are 205. The gentleman will state his inquiry if it is a, if it is a parliamentary inquiry. That's a bit of the angry young congressman, Newt Gingrich. He's having it out with Speaker of the House Jim Wright just a few years before he'd mastermind Wright's resignation from the House. That guerrilla mentality was there right from the beginning with the baby-faced history professor from Georgia. It seems he didn't come to Congress to legislate, but to agitate. So I asked Julian Zelizer, for the benefit of people my age who've only known this kind of division, what were things like before Gingrich brought guerrilla warfare to our nation's capital? Yeah, the, the way I try to describe it when I'm speaking with groups or speaking with students is that the world before the 1980s, it always had partisanship. Washington's always a fierce place and politicians naturally think about how to get reelected and how to keep their party or get their party in power. But elected officials basically balance three concerns. One is partisanship. A second is governance, a need and a belief that ultimately government has to govern. And third, the health of democratic institution. There was a loyalty before the 1980s in both parties to making sure that the institutions of government, including Congress, worked. Once Gingrich helped to flip that switch, lots of things become possible. You're willing to say whatever you want about an opponent, which was not the case before the 1970s. You're willing to take basic processes of government, whether it's the filibuster or the budget, and use them as partisan bludgeons. And I think that's how to think about the change that happens. It's not that the earlier system was perfect. It really wasn't. But this change in terms of what partisanship means and how it's practiced is very dramatic. So then if Gingrich widened political polarization and partisanship in this country, do you think if there had not been a Gingrich, would we be less polarized now? Yeah, the counterfactuals are always very difficult and historians tend to shy away from them. And, and I am one of them, but it's a question I obviously think about. And what you're saying is the setup of my book, meaning we talk about how did politics end up this way? And we tend to talk about abstract forces that inevitably pushed us here. Voters sorted, meaning Southerners became Republican, liberal uh, Republicans disappeared from the map, et cetera, et cetera, or districting or the siloed media in which we live. And all of those are true. But I also really have come to believe over the course of my career that key individuals can make a huge difference. And I do believe that Gingrich's success, the tactics he introduced, and his ability to make those tactics the guiding tactics of the Republican Party, both in the story I'm telling and then ultimately as Speaker of the House, really did matter. And I don't know what would have happened if there was no Gingrich. But the Republicans were not Newt Gingrich yet before Gingrich came to town. And going off of that, you've been studying and writing about modern American history in many well-received books, not just Burning Down the House, but also your history of modern American politics, Fault Lines. What do you think is the most important lesson that young people of the next generation should have in mind as voters, citizens, and potentially mediators in this 
polarized environment that we face today? I'd say one lesson, two, I would highlight. One is what we're talking about, that the problems and the dysfunctions and the toxicity that we see around us, that a young American student of mine or someone else sees in the news all the time, isn't a product of just a few months or a few years, that there are deeply rooted changes that have taken place. And if we don't deal with those from the broad macro dynamics like campaign finance, we're not going to change the way Washington works. And the second is that bipartisanship has its flaws as well. Civility has its flaws. But the kind of partisanship that we have right now renders Washington really incapable of dealing with the questions of the day. And they have to understand this isn't simply about Washington being ugly or politicians speaking poorly about each other. It's about rendering the institutions of government incapable of handling issues like climate change or gun control or, or, or a pandemic. And that's a dangerous place to be. So then what can just an ordinary young person do to make our government more effective? I do believe that the way Washington works only changes when there is immense grassroots pressure to do that, pressure and sustained pressure over periods of time. And I think there's lots of organizations doing good work issue-based work and some doing work that involves procedures. There's a lot of activists now who are working on the question of gerrymandering, for example. We saw it with the Parkland students. We saw it with Black Lives Matters. I think for any young person, besides voting, step two is to get involved, to find an organization that matters to them, and not only to kind of click the text to give money, but to go to an event when events are happening or a virtual event and to learn how can I become part of a mass that ultimately changes the way that Washington works. Salazar's Burning Down the House begins with a chapter on how the 2016 Trump campaign decides not to select Gingrich as the VP running mate because of their strong personal and tactical similarities. Also, their ability to manipulate the media to their own advantage is remarkably similar. In Trump's time, it would obviously be Twitter. But way back when Gingrich arrived in the House, it was the brand new network C-SPAN. This resulted in this memorable exchange between Gingrich and Speaker of the House at that time, Tip O'Neill. You deliberately stood on that well before an emptied house and challenge these people, and you challenge their Americanism. And it's the lowest thing that I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress. In many ways, it is my patriotism being impugned. As a matter of fact, I was expressing my opinion very mildly, because I think much worse than what I said. The point is, the speaker has accused- I don't mind accused... anybody expressing their opinion. The gentleman from Georgia Yale. The gentleman, Mr. Weaver, which is identified. The gentleman, Mr. Walker. The as Zelizer points out, Gingrich laid out his media philosophy early on in his political career. Conflict equals exposure equals power. With that in mind, let's hear from Dr. Zelizer about Gingrich's use of C-SPAN as a newcomer to the House and later his orchestration of the Washington press corps in bringing down Speaker Wright. The story both of you are referring to takes place in 1984, and he and the Conservative Opportunity Society, they realized this network no one really watched, C-SPAN, was a powerful tool. And what they did every evening at the end of the day 
when most legislators, you know, went to fundraisers or they went to meet with their staff or they went home, Gingrich and his cohort would get on the floor of the House and they'd make these speeches where they leveled really brutal attacks against the Democrats, saying the party didn't care about the security of the country, they were letting communism run amok, and essentially they weren't a patriotic group or party. And the thing was, the cameras only covered the person speaking. So you couldn't see the whole chamber. That was the rule that the House had agreed to. So they leveled these attacks, and they would even call out certain people by name. And there was no response because a viewer couldn't see that the chamber was empty. And it eventually blows up in a big fight on the floor of the House, and it's covered by all the networks. This was the moment when Gingrich became a national figure for the first time. And he also used investigative journalism. He weaponized that as well. There was the post-Watergate reporters who were very committed to uncovering corruption and following the lines between politics and money. So the media was Gingrich's platform. This was the place he could always make himself heard. And I think that's a lesson Republicans have not forgotten. And in fact, now they have a robust conservative media system through which they can use those tactics. So I believe you mentioned that Gingrich did not agree to an interview for the book, but made his archive accessible. Is that an unusual arrangement? And if you had been able to interview him, what would you have most liked to ask him? Yeah, it's a good question. I met Gingrich before I wrote this book or even thought of it. But then after I started writing it, I tried many times even using contacts who know him well to get interview. And each time it would be canceled or postponed at the very end to finally the point I realized it wasn't going to happen. But I was able to use his archives. I don't think he's been very restrictive. He has archives in West Georgia College, which is where he was a professor before entering Congress. And they were phenomenal. So in the end, for me as a historian, I wish I could have talked to him. But most of what I really wanted was the primary, the memos and the notes that he kept and the letters between himself and the media and other members of Congress. But I would have liked to have known from him just how deliberate he was in pursuing this kind of partisanship in the moment of my story. How much of this just happened? How much of this was kind of one moment after another building to this culminating battle? or how much he strategically thought through how to put all this together. Can you tell us about some of the eureka moments you had in that archive? And it sounds like there were quite a few of them. There were lots. I mean, one which builds on something we've discussed is just to see how consistent he was in developing this argument after Watergate of the Democrats as the source of corruption rather than Republicans. Most members don't write it all down, and he did. The most eureka moment for me, just as a storyteller, was that the book ends, just kind of briefly talking about the modern period, with the speech that Jim Wright gives on May 31st, 1989. It's one of the most remarkable speeches, I'd say, in modern congressional history, where Wright is resigning. He goes through all the charges that have been made against him, and he says all of them are untrue. And he argues that he has bad judgment sometimes, like everyone, but there's no reason he should resign. And then Wright said, but I will resign. Because he argued that if he did not, he 
knew that the House of Representatives would be consumed by a mindless cannibalism. And he asks both parties in this speech to lay down their arms. He's telling the Republicans, stop doing the stuff that Gingrich is doing. And he's telling the Democrats to basically don't respond in kind. And I'm looking through the archives and in between two manila folders, there's like a a kind of crumpled piece of yellow notebook paper. And I, by chance, I was putting the box away, but I just kind of pulled it out. It wasn't filed, it wasn't labeled. And I saw very quickly, these were the notes that Newt Gingrich was taking as he watched Speaker Wright give this resignation speech. And the notes range from Gingrich being really mad with what Speaker Wright is saying because Wright is blaming partisanship and he's blaming the Republicans. And then the final little note, which first I could barely read and then I finally figured it out, was him saying, this is the exact quote, must be doing good at my job for them to come after me like this. That was historian and columnist Julian Zelizer on the subject of his book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich. But several years before Gingrich himself would become speaker in 1995, he was the major force in bringing down the Democratic Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, on corruption charges that never resulted in a criminal case. And in that resignation speech, Jim Wright called for a return to civility. When negative campaigning becomes a full-time occupation, when members of each party become self-appointed vigilantes, carrying out personal vendettas against members of the other party. God's name, that's not what this institution is supposed to be all about. Harsh personal attacks upon one another's motives and one another's character drown out the quiet logic of serious debate on important issues Surely that's unworthy of our institution, unworthy of our American political process. All of us in both political parties must resolve to bring this period of mindless cannibalism to an end. There's been enough of it. But that call is still unanswered, as the chamber remains very much a house divided to this day. Ironically, though, years after Speaker Wright resigns, Gingrich himself would step down from the Speaker's chair and the House in response to corruption charges. His announcement, though, had quite a different tone. Uh, I spent 40 years uh, working since I was 15 to uh, try to make sure that freedom survived against the Soviet Empire, to try to help elect uh, Ronald Reagan and to try to create a Republican majority in the House. And uh, having uh, led the party to three consecutive victories in terms of having a majority in the House, the only time in 70 years we've done that, I could hardly stand by and allow the party to cannibalize itself uh, in that situation. And that the uh, prospects of Al Gore as president in a Democratic Congress should be enough to focus every Republican in the country on learning to work as a team in a positive way to make sure that we offer a better future. I'll talk about that better future Monday night at GOPAC, and as I said, I'll be glad to invite all of you there. Thank you very much. But for possibly the first and only time, let's not give Newt Gingrich the last word here. 
Let's give our featured guest today, Julian Zelizer, the last word, reading a summation of Gingrich's enduring influence. When Tea Party Republicans stormed into town after the 2010 midterms election, with the nihilistic view of government as well as their insistence of doing whatever was necessary to bring down the status quo, and Donald Trump shocked the nation by winning the 2016 election, all of them had a debt to the anti-establishment conservative populism pioneered by Newt Gingrich that shaped an entire generation of Republicans. The right scandal was the beginning of this end, and its shadow looms large and grows longer with each passing day. Thanks for listening in on episode one of season two of The Purple Principle with our special guest, Julian Zelizer, professor of history and public policy at Princeton University and the author of a New York Times notable biography of Newt Gingrich, Burning Down the House. Next time on The Purple Principle, we'll take a much more positive look at political compromise in our Congress and throughout our not-so-United States. Our guest will be Jillian Youngblood of the nonpartisan group Civic Genius. They've had some remarkably civil and productive policy discussions with voters across the spectrum and with U.S. Congress members of both parties. They've identified, I think at this point, more than 150 specific policy proposals where majorities of Democrats and Republicans agree, which is absolutely wild. I mean, there are certainly, again, places where they don't agree, but there is some common ground on immigration, things like DACA, things on a path to citizenship for people who have been in the country for a long time, on a whole slew of government reform things, especially around campaign finance reform and ethics laws. We hope you'll join us for that episode Share us on social media, review us on Apple Music, and subscribe to our newsletter, Purple Principle in Print, via our website, purpleprinciple.com. This has been Robert Pease and Emily Cressetti for the Purple Principle team, Allison Byrne, producer, Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer, Emily Holloway, research and outreach, Dom Scarlett, research associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney.